Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Miles versus Wall, round one. Mm. I'm Jen. I'm Alex. I'm Stina. And I'm Paul. And today on Reading Rangers, we are going to be discussing the first major appearance of Miles Workhouse in Warrior's Apprentice by Lois McMaster Bujold. It's very exciting. Yay! Yay! It's a Miles appearance when he's not in a baby jar. Right! I was like, the first appearance of Miles! Oh wait, no, he was in a baby jar, so... And he was a five-year-old in an epilogue. Right, but close enough. It's the first time he's adult-like and can talk a lot. When he's the main character (laughs) and sets the pattern for pretty much the rest of his life. Exactly. So speaking of that, Paul, why don't you start us off with a summary of Warrior's Apprentice and give us the major characters of the book? Okay, I'd be delighted to. The novel starts with Miles Volkazigan, who is the son and heir of Arrow Volkazigan and Count Piotr Volkazigan, who, thanks to the tetragenic effects of the gas that he and his mother inhaled in the last book, has brittle bones, is dwarfish, looks like a mutant, although he is not, and desperately wants to do something with his life. So he decides, I'm going to join the Imperial Academy. Or at least, tries to. He does well on the written exams, but right at the beginning of the obstacle course, he, well, falls off the wall and breaks his legs. End of his imperial career, or is it? So, mulking around and trying to find something to do, he decides what every young man who's broken both his legs should do. I'm going to go visit my grandmother on Beta Colony and take Elena Bothari, the daughter of his bodyguard, along, of who, of course, father comes along, and they have a nice Romping adventure, going off to Beta Colony, managing to find a deserter from the Imperial Service, a a washed up ship, and before you know it, Miles Volkazigan is flying off into a war zone for reasons even he is kind of fuzzy and sketchy on, mainly because, well, he has to pay for the ship somehow. And by a series of exchanges and improbable gambits, he manages to get himself not only a mercenary company of his own, but a mercenary company that basically breaks the blockade and ends the war. So we get to basically meet not only Miles as an adult, Elena, we get to see Bothari again, but we get to see the characters that will become the core of the Dendari mercenary fleet, like Tongue and Ellie Quinn and a few others that will uh, be very, very more important and on Miles' side all the time in the in the forthcoming novels. And I should say, there's also a underling subplot about Miles possibly running afoul of Imperial Treason. And of course, we get to we get the first appearance of his cousin, the rake, Ivan Vorpatrol. Oh, Ivan. Poor Ivan. I really have to say some things about Ivan at some point in this podcast. I invite you to do so. That sounds fantastic. So As usual, we're going to start with our overall impressions of the book, but we're going to start with our seasoned readers. And since Paul just spoke, we're going to go with Alex first. Alex. This is actually not one of my favorite novels, mostly because, you know, it's it's one of the older ones and she's still kind of like building up steam and all that. And plus... I mean, all of my favorite Miles novels are actually the ones uh, that occur later when he goes from uh, being military Miles to being Space Nancy Drew Miles. Which <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will get to eventually. Once we hit memory, that's like my happy zone. That's that's my favorite. And I think it's it's weird. Like this one is one of the, the ones that I 
reread the the least often because there's just a lot of stuff in it that kind of makes me cringe. <laughs> a lot of the way he acts towards Elena. And I mean, the thing is, what makes Miles such an interesting character is the way he, he makes... He, like, his entire life is a series of titanic fuck-ups where he then is, you know, down in the mud and he somehow manages to come up with a diamond. But, I mean, there there, there are so many titanic horrible fuck-ups in this book that I, I just, like, there are times where I'm like, I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> I think Paul said it best when he, he called it improbable events. Yeah. And that's putting it mildly. And and I think that's that's kind of part of the other thing is, you know, it, it kind of gets a little hat hung on it in later books where people basically talk about Miles kind of being able to hypnotize people with his personality. But it's it's a little too much in this book. And I, I'm just, I don't quite buy it. I don't like it. it. It's kind of, there are parts where I'm just like, oh, I don't, how is this even working? I'm not really comfortable here. But to a certain extent in that it's showing him as a flawed character that's kind of cool. Makes sense. How about you, Paul? Well, the, this book, especially in the first half, kind of hit me in the feels mainly because of the my mental circumstances as I was reading it. When, when Miles is getting knocked down in the mud and doing badly and feeling really bad and sorry for himself, well, listeners of this show and people who know me kind of know how that would how I would react to a character who gets reverses time and again. I mean, it's like, I, I am jealous of Miles because, well, he manages to turn these reverses into improbable successes again and again, but those, but the actual reverses themselves, ranging from failing at the uh, Imperial Service exams to his uh, relationships with women, shall we say, I, yeah, I, it hit me harder than it usually has. I did notice again, that Miles is very, very creepy towards Elena, and that's something that gets fixed in later books. I mean, this one was written in 1986, so this is relatively early Bujold, so I kind of had to have to give her a pass on just because she hasn't got her feet under Miles quite yet. And I also noticed, I'll bring it up now, because not too long ago, I had listened to uh, Captain Warpatrol's Alliance, which is, which we'll get to much later in this series, which kind of redeems Ivan. And I was really struck here in this first novel, our first appearance of him, of how much of a reprobate he is because- Oh, he's such a turd in this book. He, he acts like a sexist pig towards Elena. It's like, and because I, I, I nursed a private theory after Captain Warpatrol's Alliance that, that Bujold had decided to basically retcon his character as she went through the series and that book basically finishes the retcon and rereading him here, yes, yes. She definitely decided that I like Ivan and so I have to basically edge off this the crappy- squirmy, wormy, icky sides of his character. I mean, some of it's meant to be funny, the whole sleeping his way to, to uh, get to Miles with the uh, captain of the ship. I think that's supposed to be humor, not creepoid, but the way he acts towards Elena and the whole comments about, you know, do bad things to him, it's like, I don't like you in this book, Ivan. I want to, I want the Ivan I, I just read. I don't want this Ivan. Give me the, give me the better Ivan, please. I feel like I somehow blanked out the portions where he was interacting with Elena because I was having too much fun with the idea of him sleeping his way across the galaxy with an older woman, no less, which was like, you go, Ivan. I loved his interactions with Miles himself and sort of the dunderheadedness of Ivan was just kind of fun. And I, I connected with it as sort of a... I can see an 18-year-old kid being this stupid, especially when you're comparing it to Miles, who in this book seems far beyond his years. The thing with Ivan is I, I've actually known guys like that. So while I don't, Ivan in this book is not a character that I would hang out with per se. And yes, he was definitely creepy, but... I've known guys like that. And so I've never felt, I, di I didn't feel like it was improbable for him to be that way. And I guess this is probably a, my age showing or something, but I was able to like turn a blind eye and not really pay as close attention 
I'd read him doing something stupid and would just say, yeah, well, that's whatever. And then try to focus harder on the things that I really liked. I personally really liked the the whole idea of Miles making good things out of a shit show. I personally admire that ability. I I think it's an, an important skill in life to be able to, to, to take whatever comes and be able to to MacGyver it into something. Not necessarily positive, but to be able to MacGyver it into something. Useful, at least. I just feel like that's a really amazing skill to have and an admirable skill to have. Now, whether or not it's realistic here in all cases, you can argue that with me if you want to. I probably wouldn't defend it, but I, I just, I like that shit happens and Miles is able to just piece it together and say, okay, well, this is what we've got. It's, it's that, that scene in Apollo 13 where it's like, we need to make this out of these things. You know, I, that's what it is. And I just, I love that. I think that's fun. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the hallmark of Miles, which is actually, I mean, I really, really like him as a character because of that. Yeah. I hope it didn't sound like I was disagreeing with you at all when I said my piece. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, I just, I really like that about him. That, and that actually gets me through the, through things. And I, I like the military aspects of it. And it's, it's, it's kind of fun. I don't know. I guess that's everything I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> So my own impressions, I'm going to start with the fact that I had a major problem with him falling off the wall in the first place. Really? Really? I did. I had a big problem with that because at that point in time, it seemed completely out of character to me already. I don't know why, but I was like, wait, no, you've, I mean, I know what we've seen of him before in that epilogue that occurred in the previous book. So we know he's, you know, kind of a daredevil and tends to ignore his own disabilities. But at the same time, he goes into it knowing that's going to happen. And it seemed like, I don't know, it, it bothered me in the first place. I could relate to it. It was cool that everything after that happens because of this event where by which he doesn't get to be part of the Imperial Academy anymore. But it still kind of frustrated me as the as the base premise for him moving forward because he's a smart he's a really smart guy and to me it was the first opportunity for him to be like okay, I know I'm supposed to use my physical capabilities right here, but I don't have those physical capabilities. So I'm going to figure out some way to get around this, which is what he does in this rest of the book. I just felt like that he was, he just lost his shit. The other kid like goaded him. I felt like he was an adolescent and he doesn't necessarily have control of his emotions at this point. Yeah. I felt like, I mean, that didn't actually bother me because it was basically him getting, you know, this is the final lesson, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> We don't do this. And I'll accept it as that, as the final lesson. Because, I mean, he does. In the rest of the book, he pauses and he thinks his way through the situation and figures out a, you know, alternate solution. He doesn't go full bore into it. Yeah. Well, well not necessarily. I mean, he does... He does want to be that physical hero, especially for Elena. Consider consider the scene with the uh, space armor. To an extent. And he does kind of at that point want to show off, but most of the situations other than that initial scene and maybe the t when he decides he's going to go in and then has a bloody ulcer. Um, <laughs> bummer that. Um, he still is, he's looking at alternatives. He's looking at things from points of view that the rest of the cast of characters aren't looking at a situation at. And that's what I really admired about Miles. I do believe that, like Paul said, and sort of as Alex expressed, it's almost as if he's his own deus ex machina. Deus ex Miles, yeah. Yep. Right? Like, that's what this entire book is 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 him going into situations and fooling people into believing that somehow everything's going to work out but people who are so clearly overmatching him <laughs> that you're like wait no 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 why what 
How did that work? Why do you believe this 17-year-old kid? I will grant you, yes, there was that whole hand-wavy sort of, well, it's a bait and regeneration thing. Fine, but everybody was buying his shit. And at a certain point, it was a bit much. I'm going to say two words. Donald Trump. Okay, so go ahead. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, that is actually a completely valid point. A very frustrating point, but a valid point. I loved Elena. Loved, 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 loved Elena. And she made up for a lot of what I disliked about this book. And I just wish there had been more, Elena. And the side cast of characters were all really fun. And I look forward to interacting more with them in future books. I was actually... Like, at the end, he's like, wait a minute, why why isn't he still with the Dendari mercenaries? No, no, go back there. Please, stop. Don't go in the Imperial Army. That's stupid. Just hang out with the mercenaries. And then I, I checked what the next book was about, and I was like, oh, okay, I will live now. Because we can't have Cordelia anymore. Bummer that. But at least we can have Miles as, you know, mercenary Admiral Naismith and... That's exciting. Well, 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 we'll get Cordelia at the end of the reading range. Oh, that's good. Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen is basically a Cordelia and Oliver Joel book. So that's only like twenty books away. I know, though, right? But we'll, <laughs> we will get, we will get there. I'm not saying that there will be another Cordelia book. Awesome. So why don't we get into any specifics that any of you wanted to talk about in terms of this book? I did find uh, Miles's arc, I mean, for all its improbabilities, vastly entertaining. I mean, I mean, this 17-year-old kid who's pretending not to be a kid and really the head of a fictitious mercenary fleet, what, once we finally get off of Beta Colony and we start getting, and he just gets one improbable situation after another thrown at him, the, 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 the novel picks up into pretty good gear. It's like, things are quiet. Oh, nope, here comes something else. Yep, we'll solve that. It's a, it's a nice little try-fail cycle of winning his way to victory, and I appreciated the relatively brisk pacing of it. I mean, I could see how you could add a lot of flab to this novel by just lingering on Miles's personality or on the Dendari mercenaries or, or any of the world-building, but we get enough to just keep the plot going along quite nicely. And, I mean, she does refine Miles's ability, and as Alex pointed out, he'll become something else a few books down the line rather than just military but and the other thing i wanted to point out is he's really unconfident of his own ability that's that scene where he's like moping in his cabin like achilles in his tent and elena basically has to basically drag him out because the mercenaries are falling apart without him it's not until then he quite realizes just what he's done and how important he is he's not the best strategist he's not the best warrior but he's that essential quintessence that makes uh fleet work and i also had a weird alternate history thought if miles hadn't been hit by the toxin and came out normal and with his gifts and intelligence and say the appearance and look of say ivan poor gregor's throne would really be under threat because i mean wherever miles goes he would be a certain target for uh plots against the emperor i mean he'd be the obvious logical alternate choice well, I mean, we're already seeing that he's the target of various plots. Right. Yeah, I was not expecting that. But it wouldn't be something he would go with. No, no, but people would just keep wanting to throw him at the throne. And, okay, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but it's a spoiler for 19 books away. <laughs> so uh, Ivan admits in Captain of Pastor's Alliance, one of the reasons why he acts the way he does is because until Gregor gets children... His heirs, basically, are Miles and then Ivan. Well, technically, Errol, Miles, and Ivan. Te- te- technically, Errol, but by that point, Errol's dead, I think. Oh my but god, guys! Why what? would you... That's 19 books away! <laughs> yeah, books that makes away, it guys. even bigger spoiler! Don't say this stuff! <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't handle this anymore! <laughs> I'm sorry. Guys, it's okay. Errol is fine. He's a fictional character. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Errol's fine for 16 books. <laughs> okay, I, okay, so he admits that he he's only acting like an idiot so that people don't target him. 
Well, and so no one expects anything of him either. I will say that is a really good retcon of him being an idiot. Yes, it's observating stupidity. I mean, and when you put it that way, it makes everything that Miles does even more questionable. (laughs) It's like, Miles, come on, your parents should have taught you better than this. Yeah, but his parents are Errol and Cordelia, so those are two strong-willed personalities, as we've seen. That's very, very true. A review I read called, because I had a really hard time reading this book with the title, because at no point in time is he really a specific person's apprentice. So I kept searching for that specific person. So when he meets Tongue, I'm like, ooh, okay, maybe this is where we finally have the warrior's apprentice. And then I read this review and they were like, it's basically Disney's Sorcerer's Apprentice, but in space. And I was like, oh, click. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Now everything makes sense about this book, right? All the insanity that is happening. Granted, you never have that sort of the all-powerful sorcerer stepping in at the end to fix all of his messes. No, but the plates do start to crash. (laughs) Right, exactly. So it made much more sense to me. And it also kind of explains the really quick pace of this novel, because it is a very quick novel, especially after the beginning. But one of the things that I extra loved about that is the fact that somehow Bujold was able to work in what in lesser hands could be very boring, which is details of who is paying who and how much, or supply lines, and other you know, sort of obnoxious details about running a mercenary company. Those are all woven into this novel in such a fashion that I was utterly fascinated by them as opposed to completely bored by them. Well, yeah, it's part of the juggling routine that he's doing, right? That's how it's presented. I'm curious how much of that maintains over the course of the books to our more experienced readers. I mean, like... Basically, every all of the the military stuff that Miles does is is basically him finding novel solutions to problems that he creates for himself. You know, so so th- this is like an established character pattern that that you're gonna see through through all of the books that involve Miles because this is just like the core of Miles's personality. I mean, I, I guess that's why I kind of I like the Space Nancy Drew ones so much because oftentimes. There, there, are, there are places where Miles shoots himself in the foot really badly, but it's normally not, you know, he's normally applying himself to an external problem. But I, I don't think he ever quite gets in as much of a mess as he does in this first book. I kept waiting for someone, anyone, to be like, wait a second. Hold on. This uh, guide seems awfully familiar in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> like... <laughs> Well, and, and I mean, like, it's it's the entire thing. Like, Miles is this master of smoke and mirrors. That is what he does. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see him sort of play, lean into the fact that he does look so physically different from people. And it kind of freaks people out. And they have no idea, like, people can't tell what age he's supposed to be or anything like that. And he utilizes it. And, you know, he, he becomes a very good tactician. And and I mean, honestly, if if he is anyone's apprentice... Effectively, it's his father's and tongues because that that's where he, he learns so much tactical stuff from. But you see his greatest skill is in manipulating people and doing that on a grandiose scale is actually what brings him a lot of his military victories, which I think is very interesting. And, and it's actually you do get the impression that it's something that his father understands as well, because like, you know, when the, when he's talking with tongue about the invasion of Komar, it wasn't just a military exercise. It was him saying, OK, we're going to bring all of these factors together, including like trade and politics and paying people off and manipulating this and that to put ourselves into a position where we can have a military victory. And you see Miles starting to do that same thing where he has a very good understanding, which 
one could kind of wonder if it's a little too good for an 18-year-old, but, you know, this is also, like, the only defense he's ever had in his entire life, is he can't really physically defend himself, and there's always Bothari hovering over him, but his best defense has always been to emotionally manipulate people, which is terrible. It is terrible. But he applies this this really acute understanding of how people work and what makes them tick to getting them to to be in the position he wants them to be in, which I think is so interesting every time you see his thought process where he is literally doing this thing where he's like, ah, I have you now. I found your psychological handle and now I'm going to twist it. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate reading of Miles. And it explains sort of his creepiness regarding Elena. Well, I mean, I think, okay, so I think the creepiness regarding Elena, first off, you know, he's got a little bit of like the Barry Arn misogynist pig in him that his mother still had, that his mother didn't stamp out completely because it is kind of like the air that he breathes. Yes. But I, like, I think the reason it bothers me so much is he kind of nice guys at Elena where he feels like he really deserves her affection or, you know, occasionally tries to manipulate her a bit, which is gross. And I mean, like, that whole thing where, where you know, she's, like, falling for Baz and he's trying to be, like, getting in the way of that is pretty gross, where you're, like, you, you're in a position of power over this woman. So, I and, and, it, and he does a lot of the, the, like, oh, well, if only I didn't look like this, she'd love me. And I, I'm, I'm kind of like, honey, no, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is that you're the Count's heir and she grew up with you and she knows you way too fucking well. Yeah, and I think the Count's heir aspect ends up being one of the biggest portions of that. Or at least it seems like it once they discuss it later on in the novel, after she's said, you know, no, I'm going to be with Boz. I, w- I never want to go back to Bariyar ever again. And that's what you are. And there is no sort of extracting you from that position. Like, yes, maybe I could be in love with you, and clearly I do love you platonically, but your connection to that entire system, which has shit on me my entire life, is not such a good thing. Especially when you consider the context of her discovering how fucking weird things are. Yeah. Between her and and Cordelia and Errol given their role in her position as Batari's daughter. Yeah. This is the book where she discovers what she is, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I feel like it's a big damn deal. And it's, it's, it's who she is in rela- and discovering who she is and her relationship, her place in the world versus his place in the world and why this is not going to work out. I like that Miles is flawed and he's making stupid teenage boy decisions and, and, and having stupid teenage boy thoughts because he is so good at the tactical side of things and understanding people. He has all of this potential as a leader and he's got so much spot on in so many other ways. It makes perfect sense to me that he would totally not understand how, how to deal with a, a romantic relationship, right? He doesn't have a whole lot of experience with that. I'm not saying that it's a good thing that he thinks these thoughts. I just think that it's given the situation and I, j- I just think that it's, it's not that surprising. But again, it's another one of those, it's, it's like falling off the wall right? Or jumping off the wall. He's breaking his heart and he learns a lot from it. And he he doesn't do these things after he does this. So he learns from his mistake. It's not like certain series I can think of where they repeatedly, the main character repeatedly makes the same really horrific mistake over and over and over again and never seems to learn. But (laughs) he actually really learns and he does... He does do the right thing, eventually. I think one of the things that I found most interesting is regarding his relationship with Elena and with Sergeant Botari and his whole, I'm going to find your mom thing also kind of exposes his position of privilege, particularly because though a lot of the time he acts like he's just like everybody else in so many ways, he's a vore. 
And he has literally no idea what Elena has gone through her entire life, both from the standpoint of being a vor and being a male vor, particularly. He really doesn't even know what Sergeant Botari has gone through. And at one point, he makes a remark about, oh, I didn't realize he was a religious or something like that. And I was like, dude, you've been raised by him your entire life. How do you not know this? But that position of privilege is what makes him so free with things that have life-changing consequences for other people. He just does flippantly. Hence why he's like, I'm going to track her down. I'm going to set up this meeting without talking to literally anybody, which has literally fatal consequences. I totally cried, by the way. I'm still a little bit upset. Even though I had very mixed feelings about Sergeant Botari in the earlier books. That is, to me, is one of the strongest parts of the book because when you look at it, Botari's death was kind of an inevitability because if nothing else, as as long as Miles always had Bothari to lean on, he, he wasn't going to kind of strike out on his own like he needed to. And, and this was a big piece of character development for Miles. And it was also one of the few times where Miles engineered a situation that was a total fuck up that he couldn't fix, which I think was also super valuable. But yeah, I mean, Bothari to me, I love Bothari as a character because he is that, that character that kind of really exemplifies that very few people are all just one thing. Uh-huh. He's so complex. I love that. Yeah, because like to, you know, Elena Visconti, he he is her nightmare personified. And to Miles, he's he's almost a father figure at times and, and much beloved. And it's like both of these things exist in the same person. There's a little bit of an escape hatch there for, for both Ari, just with the whole like having his memory partially erased. You know, some of the stuff that, that I think Bujold kind of put in there to make him sort of fuzzier in his definition as a monster but his death is still tragic in that sense and and then i also just loved that there is no like happily ever after we can fix this everything because even when miles goes to elena visconti and is like could you please just talk to you know my elena and this woman is like what the fuck is wrong with you and miles is like could you just fake it like that's not a, a really super happy ending there no I really struggled with that response by him. And I think it was another one of those points in time where he's like kind of forgetting his privilege and sticking his nose where he shouldn't just because he can. And to an extent, he feels like it's his place because of the fact that Botari definitely kind of put it upon him as Elena's sort of guardian, which was weird, but at least through Errol. But I still had a really tough time with that decision of his. And I definitely felt for Elena Visconti in this entire situation, right? I mean, like, she is, had to face her torturer, her rapist. And I, I agree, it's one of the most powerful things I think that occurs in this, this book. But it happening, like you said, it both frees Miles, but it also definitely frees Elena. Oh yeah, it lets her really pursue her own life. Exactly, which was like, thank goodness. I was not looking forward to that fight, <laughs> like, in one hand. Like, I was not looking forward to her spirit getting completely crushed by the Baryaran system. So, I'm glad it didn't. Me too. Whew. That was a load off my chest. Why don't we talk next about some of our side characters? The first of which we meet are Austin and Thorn. I'm curious, one of the things that I think has to do with the changing times is, and we've mentioned them in, I think, the past episodes, that the Badens have hermaphrodites, which is not, I don't think, really a proper term anymore. And maybe if Bujold were writing this today, she would use intersex. But I thought Thorne was awesome. A. Awesome less so. But I'm curious what you guys think of how Miles brought the Ariel and her crew into the fold. And of the use of the term hermaphrodite versus... I don't know if I would necessarily agree that the way she was defining bait and herms would necessarily be the same as as intersex because bait and hermaphrodites literally have 
fully functioning male and female gonads. Okay, I wasn't sure. Oh yeah, you know, they're they're basically kind of, um, uh, I don't know if it's like they're artificially created, so genetically they just, you know, like, you can have hermaphrodite children and, and all that. So it's it's not quite the same as people who are intersex, which it's, it's like a broad spectrum. And it, it's kind of, I mean, the one thing that really does show the changing times is the fact that in Bujold's books, the pronoun for hermaphrodites is it. Yeah, that bothered me. Yeah, and I... <laughs> it bothers me a lot. Oh, no, it bothers the hell out of me. And I think part of it is just, you know, when she fir- she introduces her first beta and Herm, which I think she actually mentions them way back in, like, Shards of Honor. Yeah, I think they do. That's why I was like, I'm pretty sure that we have been introduced to the concept already, but I don't know if they did on an individual level or not. I couldn't remember. No, we, we, there wasn't a Baden Herm in Shards of Honor. So the problem is, like, when she wrote that book, she kind of locked herself into that being the pronoun. And then, I, you know, I don't think it really kind of became a point where, pe- where a lot of readers would be kind of going like, huh? you know, until many books later. And then I, I, I feel like she kind of locked herself into it. So it, it's kind of hilarious that there are some, some much later books like in Diplomatic Immunity, Miles runs across Belthorne again. And they, they have to even have this little conversation where Belle's like, yes, yes, no, the, the proper pronoun for referring to Baden Herms is it. And I'm just like, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> the cringing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, to a certain extent, I sympathize with her as a writer because it's sort of like, well, do I retcon this or do I just fucking roll with it? And I guess she chose to roll with it. But I mean, Belle is Belle is a, a really cool character. Yeah. Yeah, they totally are. And I'm hoping we get more Belle, like a, you, you mentioned at least once. So Belle gets to stick around. Oh, yeah, Belle. You, you get to see Belle in, I think, pretty much all of the other books that have the Dendari in them and then at least one more book after that. So, yeah, you get to see Belle. Sweet. And then they get eaten by an alligator. I mean, no. Wait, what? What? No. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Damn you, Alex. Damn you. Stop giving us all of these deaths. I can't handle it. So they, they, everybody dies. This is, I'm throwing up a smoke screen <laughs> for Paul. That's, they all die. That's not everybody nice. Everybody in these books dies. Paul, is Alex lying to us right now? Not everybody dies, right? Just half of them? There are characters... In these early books that will be still in the last book, yes. See? That's nicely vague. It works. I like it. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. One question I had for our experienced readers, so Paul, you can answer this question for me, I hope. Artie Mayhew, who is the pilot that appeared, what, in the first book, right? That... We weren't expecting to come back, but he's back. The pilot without a ship, unfortunately. The RG-132, I think it is, which is the freighter that randomly Miles decides to purchase from, I can't remember the character's name, who gets locked in a closet later on. But Artie Mayhew is basically defunct. No, that's not the quite the right word. Obsolete. Obsolete. Artie Mayhew, the obsolete pilot of this particular type of ship that is unfortunately in a daring display of awesomeness, uh, Artie uses to crash into another ship and unfortunately damages the RG-132. And so the one ship that he can pilot based on the technology in his head, his jump technology, he no longer has a ship. So please tell me, this is a spoiler that I desperately, desperately need that Artie Mayhew comes back and he gets either his old ship back or finds a new one. Okay, so I will spoil for you. He becomes a shuttle pilot for the Dendari. A shuttle pilot? Shuttle pilot, yeah. Oh, poor Artie. So so, so we we will see him again. A couple of books, I believe. But he he doesn't get a wormhole jumping ship back. He basically becomes a shuttle pilot. Oh, that's sad. Although, it makes more sense. (laughs) Well, and... You know, I mean, the, the, the kind of thing that kind of makes these books cool is often people don't get what they want. And, and people evolve their careers and change and do different things. Just like Miles. Miles will not always be an Imperial officer, as we've told you. Space Nancy Drew. Yay! Space Nancy Drew. I was really concerned, only because we were given that really horrifying but also very interesting interaction and i'm sure this will come into play later on it's 
murder by proxy when Miles orders Botardi torture the jump pilot of the aerial, which I don't even... I mean, we get his name at some point, but I don't think we know it at the point that this happens. And Botari's choice is to tear out one of the nodes that makes it possible for a jump pilot to jump, which was horrifying. Yeah. And the character dies, which not unexpected, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if we ever get Artie's reaction to that situation because they cover it up almost immediately. But... After that happens, I extra understood sort of Artie's horror at not being able to do what he did before. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting way of demonstrating that. It also showed another aspect of Bothari, right? Because it showed him being, it shows the monster side. So it makes it more real. It's not just this thing that happened in the past and he, he no longer has, is, should be held accountable for or some shit like that, right? It really is part of who he is. And he, he really is a monster. So it all makes much more sense. I, I don't know. I really like the way that it was done. It made sense. It also made, Miles sit up and, and, and think twice about a lot of the orders that he was giving. That was his moment of heads up. People are going to die. And these orders that you're giving, you're not just those plates that you have that you're juggling in the air. Some of those are people. And that's a lot of responsibility. So I really like the way that was handled. Are there more repercussions from that, guys? Alex and Paul, later on? Not that I can immediately recall. I mean, torture and violence and those sorts of themes will come up again and again. And I'm thinking of a certain character. I'm sure you're thinking of the same one, Alex, that we should not mention because that'd be a major spoiler to mention that character. But yeah. Yeah, there's some other stuff that, that comes up and is very important, but not that particular thing. Miles may still think about it occasionally because it's a fucked up thing. Right. Okay, good. Because... I hate when things don't have repercussions. And there were definitely repercussions within this book, but, you know, it's like, I'm curious to see the long-term consequences of that decision. Although, as Stina points out, it does make him more aware that the plates that he's juggling can fall and break, and that they're people. That's kind of a big deal. My last sort of concept that I'm hoping probably... Of the three of you, because I'm less experienced with the Vor in general and Bariar, how much sort of loyalty and duty played into this book and sort of the, the meeting of two different types of loyalty, one being the Bariar and familial to, you know, king and country, so to speak, versus not necessarily specifically Baton, but everybody else, which is specifically with the the Dendari mercenaries, they're mercenaries, but they have loyalty to contract. I don't know how loyal they actually were to contract in this one, but I'm curious about your guys' thoughts on that in terms of sort of the, this book and then overall. We, We will get to see more kinds of relationships between people and their society, which is the general question asker, than even just, um, there, there will be different systems beyond the bait and beyond Barya that what we comparison contrasting to coming up in in future novels and Barya is definitely the most feudal I'm going to swear you as my armsman I'm going to swear you as my my vassal sort of thing but there are definitely different kinds of relationships between people and their and other members of the society beyond just the models we've seen it seems it is a theme that runs through the books and that tension between how those different types of uh, loyalty and and sociology interact across a galactic stage. Oh, and this is the first time I think we actually get to meet Setagandans, is it not? We've mentioned Setagandans, but I don't think we've seen Setagandans. Yes, it get very, very, very early, and there'll be much more Setagandans, much more developed. I mean, here they're barely a blip. They will be much more than a blip in in future books. Much, much more. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, there is one named after them. So <laughs> I would hope so. 
Uh, yeah, I was very curious about that. That I mean, like they didn't. She doesn't go into very much depth when they get the recruits, which was hilarious, by the way. It was one of my f- favorite sorts of moments when I think it's Thorn shows up with you know like a hundred new recruits from Planet Side, and it's like, look what I brought you, like a cat coming home with like a a bird in its mouth like i'm so proud um <laughs> except that it's a ragtag you know group of misfits <laughs> like strolling in going uh we just want to get off planet so if you're good with that we're good with that and that's when the set again ends um there's like a couple of them but it was kind of interesting to see that immediately she mentions that tension between the Setagandans and the Baryarans. Well, yeah, because we have that history of Setaganda having conquered Baryar, getting kicked off. And there are throwaway references in this book that they've had a couple of skirmishes in space since. That we don't, as far as I know, ever really get any real detail, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, on on those skirmishes. Ever. They just mentioned, oh yeah, they had skirmishes and we move along. I think you're right. I I can't think of any time when it's been like really getting into it. I mean, Bujo's just not interested in that sort of space war, especially if none of her characters are on screen. Which I suppose makes sense. So we're hitting approximately our hour mark. So I'm curious if anybody has a... If Stina or Stina, if you have any more questions for our readers who have gone much further ahead of you uh, in terms of overarching themes or whatnot, and B, if Alex and Paul have anything from this book that they think is really important to point out that might have long-term repercussions. So Stina, do you have any extra questions? Nah, I, I don't. I'm, I'm content to wait. <laughs> You've already read a couple more books ahead though, so you're a cheater. Well, yeah. I kind of am. (laughs) Alex, how about you? Anything that you think readers of this book should pay extra special attention to in terms of might have repercussions later on that we should know about? Not not anything like extra special. I mean, I think you should just pay attention to to this being Miles' modus operandi as he moves forward. Oh, and actually, I mean, do 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 remember that this is the point where Ilian gets to end up in his own dungeon, which is kind of hilarious. Oh yeah, that's right. Spo- what? What? We're being spoilers. We're being spoilery. Wait, I'm totally blanking. Which one's Ilian? Simon Ilian is the head of Imperial Security. You see him and Barry R. Because when Negri dies, Ilian's just kind of standing there and and. Errol's like, all right, Ilian, I guess you got the job. And Ilian's like, oh, shit. Right, right, right. But Ilian's also got an eidetic memory chip, which comes up quite often later. But yes, this is not the first. Well, no, I I will say this is probably on record as the first time that Miles has gotten poor Simon in serious pucky. But not the last. (laughs) But not the last by a long shot. But but he does he does save he will save Ivan I'm Simon a couple of times so you know fair fair. I would also recommend keeping in mind Miles's decision to not say anything to Gregor about what Elena Visconti had to say about Gregor's dad. Oh yes. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which we know that she had the truth of it. Yes. And I'm assuming she shows up again. Spoilers! Never mind, don't tell me. I, I, I won't tell you. I, I, I will say that the ghost of uh, Prince Serg is ever-present. Yes, very, very long. Ugh. Ugh. God, that's a horrible ghost to linger, too. The worst! Mm. I know, right? Oh, yeah. Ew. All right, Paul, anything other than what Alex just mentioned that we should pay particular attention to? I, th- I think Alex hit most of it. I mean, just pay attention to the Dendari characters we met here because you're going to get, and if you like them, you're going to get to see a lot more of them in, in a fuller form. And, and as Alex said, this is kind of Miles's way of operating in his, in his most uh, 
neonatal state. So it'll get more interesting from here. And it was already so interesting. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Yay! He, he, he's got a lot more. He's got a lot more walls to run into. <laughs> Hooray! Hence, hence, hence my tagline. That's awesome. All right. Any final thoughts, everybody? This this is my least favorite of the Miles novels, so they only get better from here. Well, that's good to know. And because I actually I I did like this one, I I did enjoy it tremendously. It is it is a ton of fun. Like even though I always express I had problems with this and this and this, don't let that diminish the fact that I actually really loved this first introduction of Miles, and I am looking forward to more of him. I'm more looking forward to more of the Dendari mercenaries because that's just my jam. But it, it's definitely an exciting exciting new direction for the Vercosica saga to go in, considering that all we've had is Cordelia up until this point, even though people who read these in publication order had less. I guess that's it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Reading Rangers. What are we reading next? Next up is the Vore game, isn't it? Yeah. Yep, the Vore game is next. The Vore game. Vore is in V-O-R, not V-O-R-E. Just, just gonna make sure, make that clear. <laughs> no, no small weasels, and isn't that what a vor is? Oh, Jen, honey, I'll let you Google it. I'm clearly kind of an idiot here, so <laughs> <laughs> Google it, and then be prepared to pour, to pour bleach all over your computer. Oh God! <laughs> ah! And on that note, everybody, say goodbye. You're welcome, citizen. You're welcome. Bye! (laughs) Goodbye. Awkward ending. So awkward. And scene. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at SkiffyInfanti at gmail.com, on Twitter at SkiffyInfanti, on Facebook at The Skiffy Infanti Show, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash SkiffyInfanti. Our intro and outro music comes from The Launch by Cronux. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.